So we've been looking at uh, Philippians, we're up to chapter 3, the first three verses that text is uh, in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. But before I read it, let me uh, pray. Uh, would you join me? Father, we come to you today thanking you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, those r- words uh, roll so easily off our tongues, and we take them for granted, and yet uh, we know that it is the thing foremost on your mind. Uh, your glory manifest in uh, the righteous work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And so I pray today as we are re-reminded of that, that you would forgive us for our false trusts, our false hopes, and uh, lead us again to see the glory of the gospel. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Philippians 3, verses 1 to 3 um, This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, So I... Just as a reminder, this this uh, uh, letter was written from Paul in prison to the church at Philippi, going to be delivered by Epaphroditus. We talked about him last week. And the intention was that the, the church would receive the letter, Paul would deliver it to them, and it would be read on Sunday morning worship, just like we're, we read it here in our worship service, that someone would stand up and read this letter in front of the church. And so as I was looking at it this week, I thought, I wonder what the kids in the room thought when they heard that word, finally. <laughs> right? Uh, but it's not finally, is it? And he's still got two more chapters. We're barely halfway through the book. So I'm sure the kids were, were super bummed by that, right? That all of a sudden it was like, um, uh, you know, he said, finally, and he's we're gonna he's going to keep us in here for even longer. Uh, forgive an old... Uh, uh, pastor's joke, right? Uh, a little boy one time asked his dad, uh, you know, Dad, what um, what does it mean when the pastor says finally? And the uh, dad said, absolutely nothing, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so he doesn't really mean he's at the end of the book. It simply means he is to the place now where he's changing, he's transitioning uh, in his argument. Because what he's been doing is he's been calling on the church uh, because there's threat of division in the church to consider Jesus Christ and to consider the fact that the Jesus, though he was equal with God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and putting the interests of others before himself. And so he's going to turn the page here today and say, look, in the midst of all this, in the midst of the struggle and the difficulty and the challenges uh, that he faces, that Paul faces, that the church faces, he wants them to be marked first and foremost by joy. And he says to them, listen, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What he desires for them and what he desires for us is that a mark of the church of what people would be able to tell that would, that would be true of us is that we have joy and that we have joy of sins forgiven. And why would he say that it is a good thing to remind us of that? I mean, obviously, joy is a, is a positive thing. But why would it be safe for us? Why would it be safe for us 
to have joy. Well, he's going to express that to us in the next two verses, because what our our tendency is, our joy as Christians is rooted first and foremost and finally in the completed work of Jesus Christ for us. That's the source of our joy. That fact that my sins are forgiven, that I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that I have God as my father and I have access to him and that nothing in this world can change that. It is not dependent on my behavior. It is not dependent on my performance. It is not even dependent upon uh, my religious observance. It depends solely on the work of Christ. You will lose your joy. I will lose my joy whenever we root our acceptance with God, whenever we root the connection that we have with God on anything other than the work of Christ. It makes sense, right? When you begin to slip into comparing yourself to others, when you slip into thinking that somehow or other you are made right before God because of your performance or your pedigree or or your correct thinking or something like that or who you vote for or any of those things, all of those things are temporary. They are uh, uh, fly by night and they cannot afford you or I any confidence. None. Our confidence can only be unshaken. Our confidence can only be sure if it is rooted in something that can't be shaken and something that is sure. And if in the final analysis, our confidence is is somehow or other upon our identity in anything other than belonging to Jesus Christ, we will have our joy robbed. It is such a profound and, 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 and elemental thing for us. And so Paul wants to be very clear with the church at Philippi because there seems to be this division there. There's this dispute between these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. And it seems that, at least here in these verses, that the issue is not simply an issue of, you know, how the church is decorated or any of that kind of stuff. But really, it's getting down to the nature of the gospel and what it is that makes us success, acceptable to God, right? And one of the things that you have to see about this is that Paul is so intense about this and, and so passionate about it. Um. When you read the New Testament and you read the, the work of the Apostle Paul, we, we read about his love and we read about his warmth and we, we read about the, his, how dear these people are to him. But when you read about what he says and what he thinks about people that are distorting the gospel, his language becomes almost profane. I mean, he, he, uh, he cannot abide that. Uh, and as we're going to see in the text here, he uses very strong language to get at and to, to talk a, a, about people who would use things other, use anything other than the work of Christ to make them acceptable before God. So he says that's the source of our joy. And then he, he goes on to say, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, why does he say, what does he say, look out for the dogs? 
Uh, on Saturday mornings, I often get up early and, and uh, piddle and do things, and I'm out riding around. And I listen to NPR because sometimes they have interesting interviews. And yesterday they interviewed a lady who can tell you what your dog thinks. <laughs> now, I don't know how she knows that. I guess her dog told her. I guess they had a conversation about this, and uh, she she's an expert about that. And she was just going on about how, how, how wonderful it is. But they, the, the interviewer said, you know, there's been some recent research that has come out that shows that this, this is going to offend a lot of you, so sorry. Uh, the dogs, in terms of ranking, in terms of their intelligence with other animals, they're at the bottom of the scale. Now, that's, that's not, let me explain that before you get mad at me or anything like that, but the, the fact is the reason why they're considered not very intelligent is they're not problem solvers. Okay? Like you've seen those experiments, right, where they take birds and they put a cup of water there, but the water is too far down for the bird to get its uh, beak in there to get a drink. It'll drop rocks in the thing to raise the level of water up so that it can actually get something to drink. A dog is too dumb to do that. But the lady, who's the expert on dogs, who's interviewed her dog a number of times, says, ah, but maybe dogs are smarter than we think they are because they don't have to solve problems. Why? Because you will solve all of their problems for them. (laughs) So maybe, just maybe, they're not so dumb after all. And so they went on to talk as as they were talking. Doesn't that make you feel better about your dog? Your dog is smarter than my honor roll student. And so, so the, so the, 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 they went on to talk about the fact that because of the pandemic, a great thing that's happened, but of course, maybe not so great, is that all these animal shelters have been cleaned out. People have, people have adopted, I'm sorry, that's a terrible word, but people have taken dogs, uh, out of the shelters into their homes because they're lonely. Uh, and they're concerned that, that, that maybe, you know, people will get back to their lives and they won't want the dogs anymore. And so the interviewer said, so what would you say to those owners of dogs? And the lady said, well, first of all, it's very offensive. You don't own the dog. So to call somebody a dog in our culture might, might actually be a compliment, right? But... In this culture, as we'll see, especially first century Jewish people reserved the word dog for outsiders. Reserved the word dog for ethnically and ethically unclean. And to illustrate this, I'll just show you. In Matthew 15, a a Gentile woman approaches Jesus one day. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon would have been a place full of Gentiles, full of non-Jewish people. And behold, a Canaanite woman. And remember, you know, the, 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 the Bible doesn't have a lot of great things to say about Canaanites, if you'll remember that, right? They're not, they're not stellar citizens. But a Canaanite woman from that region came out and, and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. 
Um, and this is something interesting to note about this, right? Um, what, you know, have mercy on me. What, what a great cry. The Lord finds that. Uh, yeah, it's what a great cry. Have mercy on me, O, son of da- o Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. In other words, what a pain. Get rid of her. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And so what Paul is doing here is something that is that is crazy to think about. So remember, Paul, as he is going to tell us uh, later on in uh, uh, in this book, is that he is he he has uh, an impeccable resume that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees, that that he uh, uh, when it comes to the righteousness that you can get from religious and ethnic uh, observance, he has it all. He checks all the boxes, right? But this man, who is a Jew of Jews, is going to say something really profound here. He's going to say that other Jewish people who are saying to Christians, there must be something else you need to add to your simple faith in the work of Jesus Christ. They're like dogs. They're like outsiders. He's using very strong language here to describe him that way. What's striking about Paul's use of that language is he's not talking about Gentiles. He's talking about Jewish people, people who like to boast in their pedigree, their Jewishness, as one of the identifying marks of being truly a member of God's covenant community. They said it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. You need to come from the right background, belong to the right ethnicity. You need to be Jewish to be in. And this was the issue in the first century church. They struggled mightily with this. And, and, uh, and, and if you read the New Testament at all, you see that there's all sorts of conflict that, that even though Peter was given uh, visions of, of uh, uh, the, the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles in Cornelius uh, when he goes and he visits him, right? And he goes and proclaims the gospel outside of the, of the Jewish community. And yet we read in Galatians where Paul has to rebuke him because he, he held back from fellowship with Christians who were not of Jewish origin. Let me be clear. Your, your pedigree, your ethnicity, your experience in life counts for nothing. Counts for nothing. The only thing that counts is the work of Jesus Christ for you. There is nothing else. And, and Paul sees this as literally a life and death uh, issue. That, it, that, that people's eternity depends on this. That the vitality and the life of the church depends on this. Because one of the, and this is one of the things, this is one of the reasons why this doesn't mean so much to us 
It's because, oh, yeah, 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 we know that in Christ alone. Yeah, 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 I get that. And yet what we tend to do is we judge one another, we rank one another, we look at one another in this way, uh, and we stack each other up. And that's why we lose joy, because we look around, and you can always find someone who is smarter, someone who knows more, someone who is clearer. And sometimes what happens to us is, is that what we end up trusting is not Jesus, but we trust the fact that we say we trust. <laughs> right? But if you're like me, your trust goes up and down. But Jesus is the same. Always faithful. Always gracious. Always turn toward those who cry out to him in mercy. So that, that is the, that, that's why Paul sees this as such, a, as such an important thing. Because here's the deal. This is something we don't like to talk about in our culture. Something we don't like to think about at all. But the New Testament loves the image of Jesus Christ as judge. We don't like that, do we? How can there be good news in that? That's the best news. Because if Jesus is judge, then he will come back and declare and establish his righteousness once and for all. If Jesus is judge, he will judge us based on the truth. He'll judge us based on what our hope is. If you go before the judge and you have a false plea, you're in trouble. You're going to be condemned. But the joy that we have is going before our judge who was himself judged on our behalf, who extends to us his righteousness. That's our hope. That's what we bank on. And that is ultimately, as Paul sees here, not only the source of our joy, but the source of life, the source of hope. And the one thing that makes the, the, the Christian church, that makes Christians different from the rest of the world is that we know We have been taught, we believe, we rest in Jesus alone. Nothing else. Nothing else. And that is why Paul uses this crazy language, because first he says they're dogs, and then he goes on to say, look out for the evildoers. Now when we think of, when you think of who are the evildoers around you, you probably think of people who are, who are doing terrible things, who are sinning in gross ways. And yes, that is evil. But Paul is saying here, those good people that you go to church with, those good people that you worship with, who might tempt you to think that you need to add something to the work of Christ, are evildoers. They're terrible. They're the worst. Avoid them. A false gospel, not only is such, is, is, it kills people. And it kills them forever. And not only does he say that they're evil, but he goes on to call them mutilators of the flesh. And what he's referring to there is the fact that what these people are likely saying, as he goes on to say here, is that, that what you need to add is the Gentiles is you need to add the mark of circumcision. Paul was circumcised. He was a Jew of Jews. It was something that that I'm sure at a point in time in his life was a point of pride because it set him apart from the rest of the world. 
But this language that he uses here for mutilation is a, is, is a really interesting word because it's the same word that's used back in 1 Kings 18. Remember, remember Israel is in trouble. Their queen is um, uh, Jezebel. And, you know, nobody names their kids Jezebel anymore, do they? Because she's a bad person, right? Really bad. She misleads the nation. They, they worship the false god Baal. And Elijah says, all right, you know what? I'm calling you out. We're going to have a smackdown out here. And what we're going to do is you build your altar, you put your offering on it, and I'll build my offering, uh, my altar, and I'll put my offering on it. And whichever God sends down fire from heaven to consume the off- offering, he's the real God. So while Elijah is over here dumping water on his altar to make it hard for God, hard for God, the priests of Baal are over here. They're dancing around and they're doing their thing. And, and Elijah's like, hey, he's in the bathroom. Hey, maybe he's taking a nap. Wake him up. So what do they do to wake him up, to get his favor, to get him to do something? They cut themselves. They mutilate themselves. As he says, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. What a gross picture. They're cutting themselves to get God's attention. Well, that's what Paul says when you begin to entrust yourself to this thing of circumcision. That's what you're doing. And just think about that. This is Paul rejecting what he had thought and, and, and given himself to his whole life. That his salvation depended upon his Jewishness and his obedience to these rites. And he is saying, if that is your hope, you're just like a prophet of Baal. Mutilating your body, shedding your own blood to get God's favor. How ironic that God sheds his blood to give us his favor. Right? That's the heart of the gospel there. And that, that, is, that is why he uses such strong language to describe these people who are misleading Christians to think that they must add something to their faith. Next, next slide. So what he says is then we are the, the people who are entrusting themselves in faith alone to Christ are the true circumcision. And we're marked by three things. First, worship empowered by the Spirit, right? That it's not... It's not the rituals that we use. It's not the things that we do or, or any of that. What, what, what marks us out is the spiritual nature of our worship. Jesus met a woman one day and he told her that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. That what informs us, what, what drives us is not the external things that we do in worship, but the work of the spirit often hidden as the truth of the gospel is proclaimed. Secondly, he says that they glory, that we exult in Christ Jesus. You and I are tempted all the time to take our sense of well-being and our sense of hope and our sense of acceptance. We, we, do, we, we base it all the time on measurable things about us, don't we? And we tend to exult in that. When we look around us and we think, well, I'm not like that guy. Or we're like the Pharisee who looks at the tax collector and says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that. I vote the right way. I listen to the right uh, speakers. 
I read the right books. Right? So anytime we begin to use those things to build some sort of sense of righteousness, we're, we're becoming a mutilator, a, an evildoer, especially when we lead others to do that. And then lastly, he says, put no confidence in the flesh. Um, t- typically, when we hear the New Testament speak about flesh, we think about lust and coveting and gossiping. But really, our confidence in the flesh becomes dead religious works, right, to earn God's favor. I must confess to you that I am a hypocrite. That for more than 27 years, I have stood before you and told you that your only source of joy your only source of hope, your only means of acceptance is in the work of Jesus Christ. And often, I have given myself to other things as my source of acceptance. I wrote in my letter yesterday about our statistical form that we turn in every year. Our denomination's big on statistics. They collect them into these books, and they publish them every year. And I used to buy one every year because I wanted to open that book up and look at our statistics and compare it to the guys I went to school with and other guys I know. And I would think, (laughs) I bet old Joe is looking at our statistics right now, and he's hating me because I'm smoking him. We're doing so much better than his church. Yeah, yeah. I feel good. This, this, is, this is great, right? We should rejoice in the work of God, but any time we think that something like that adds to the righteousness that we have in Christ, our joy Our sense of peace is robbed. And I would say to you today that if that becomes such a thing for us, we need to ask the question, have we even been converted? Uh, My dad died on a Sunday morning, and on the Tuesday night before that, I was with him in in his room, and we were talking, and... Uh, my cousin came to visit us because my cousin is a longtime music minister in a Baptist church, and he was going to lead the music at my dad's funeral, and he wanted to talk with me and my dad about the funeral, something you don't get to do very often, something that is uh, a pretty profound thing. That My dad was still very lucid, still on top of things, and in fact, he was making jokes as as we were talking about it. And the thing that he wanted to be clear in his funeral and in the music we sang was that there was no other hope for him except the work of Jesus Christ. And he identified a couple of hymns that he wanted to sing. Uh, one of them I had never heard before, but basically it was that his only plea was uh, the, the work of Christ. And so my cousin, you know, we're, we're there. And this is, you know, on the one hand, this is a, 
This is a very solemn thing to do, you know. On the other hand, my dad was making jokes about it. My cousin asked him, like, well, what else are we going to do in the funeral? And, and my dad said, well, uh, Brad and Steve, that's my brother and me, they're going to uh, they're going to uh, eulogize me and, and they're going to preach a sermon. And uh, my cousin Phil said, oh, that, that's a great thing. He's like, yeah, you know, they're going to tell everybody how sorry I was. Now, you know, when we say we're sorry, that means we regret that we did something in rural North Carolina. When you say you're sorry, that means you're trifling no good. Okay. <laughs> a sorry individual is somebody who is lame, that sort of thing. Uh, and so I thought it was just, a, and, and we laughed at that uh, because the, the, the truth of the matter is, that's true of all of us, that the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ is that he died for sorry people like us. And ironically, in the midst of facing death, you can say, that's my confidence, not in myself. Not in what I did or didn't do. But when I stand before my judge, my plea will be my judges on life and righteousness. Right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you today, I pray that you would help us see how Life and death, the gospel is. And I pray that you would uh, protect us, as you say here, to help us find safety uh, in, in the truth, safety in the cross, safety in the atoning work that you have done for us. And I pray for those of us who are here today who are stuck in uh, this calculus of comparison or this calculus of have I done enough or have I not done the wrong things that are our hope? That you would give peace and joy uh, as we see uh, the solid rock that is Jesus Christ. Lord, plant our feet, secure our feet to that which cannot move. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sins by using uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Uh, that uh, prayer is uh, in the bulletin and also uh, behind me. O Lord, our God, who brought his people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and by Christ delivered us from sin, you have been faithful to keep all the promises of your covenant, But we, O Lord, have been a stiff-necked people who love unfaithfulness. We have loved other gods before you and become their servants. We have not worshipped you in spirit and in truth, and so we have mocked your glory in heaven. We have used your name in vain and profaned your reputation on earth. We have desecrated your Sabbath because we have not trusted you to give us rest. 
We have not honored our fathers and mothers, and so we have proved ourselves rebels. We have hated our neighbors and murdered them in our hearts. We have made adulterers of ourselves in the lust of our eyes or in the deeds of our flesh. We have stolen honor and wealth and privileges that are not ours. We have lied and falsely accused, for we love gossip more than truth. We have coveted blessings you wisely and righteously gave to others. O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have not kept your law. Believers, hear these words of encouragement. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 